story about this, about this king, and um, he, he wanted to know who was the bravest man in his kingdom. So he set up a contest, and the winner of this contest would have the wealth of half the kingdom and the, um, the princess's hand in marriage. And so, as you can imagine, you know, hundreds of men entered this con- contest, and they all turned up to the castle, and, and they were gathered there, and then the king came out, and he announced what the contest was. And he drew everybody's attention to the moat that was surrounding the castle. And in the moat, it was just teeming with deadly fish, like piranhas, sharks, killer whales, all that sort of stuff, swimming around in this moat. And the king said, the first man to cross this moat will win the contest, he will have half my riches, and he will marry my daughter. Who has the courage to claim this prize? And all the men looked at the piranhas, they looked at the sharks, they looked at the killer whales, and they were terrified. They were absolutely freaked out about their life. They did not want to lose their life in this moat. And so they all started to shrink back. And the king was looking around and no one was, no one was keen. And they started to give up hope that there was any brave men in his kingdom. And then as he turned to walk away, he heard this splash. And there was a man swimming across the moat. And he was fending off the piranhas and the killer whales and the sharks. And, you know, the situation just looked absolutely hopeless. Like he was not, never going to make it out. But ma- amazing miracle. He managed to climb out the other side of the moat with just only a few scratches on. He was completely breathless, but managed to get out the other side of the moat. And the king was just delighted, you know. Here's the bravest man in his kingdom. So he went over to the man, shook his hand, and he said, you can claim your reward. And the princess held out her hand and sort of flashed a beautiful smile. And, and the man just, he was panting, but he just, he just shook his head. And the king said, well, if you don't want my daughter to marry, then surely half my riches, they are yours. And the man still just shook his head. And, and the king was puzzled and he said, look, I don't know what, what your prize is that you want, but if it's within my power, I'll do all that I can. And the man finally caught his breath and he said, there's just one thing I want to know. Who the heck pushed me? (laughs) Now, if you thought you were having a bad day, spare a thought for that guy. I think last week we uh, started to explore that there's this downward gravitational pull on our lives where there's forces at work, things that have a negative, have a uh, a burdensome, shrinking, reducing effect on us. Stuff like depression, stuff like uh, sickness, stuff like rejection or disillusionment or disappointment or loneliness. All those things can kind of have a, a, a pulling down, a wearing down effect on our lives. And I don't know where you're at this morning, but perhaps you're at the edge of that moat and you're looking at out all those terrible things and you're wondering if you're going to make it to the other side. And so that's why if you were here last week, I encouraged you to lift your eyes and see that God gives you the help that you need. In fact, we tracked through a psalm, Psalm 121, and, and we read in that, that God will not let you slip. He's not slumbering. He's not sleeping. He is watching over you as you come and go. But the reality is that sometimes when times are tough, it's hard to see anything else. You know, it's so easy to think that 
this is my life and this is all there is and, and disappointment and disillusionment starts to kind of creep in really, really insidiously. And sometimes you get to the point where you're like, well, this isn't how I thought my life would turn out. You know, my marriage has gone through a rough patch. Job's wearing me down. The kids are driving me crazy. This illness that I have is just debilitating. Well, the financial stress is just really overwhelming. And if you are in or have been in those situations, you know that you need a miracle. Maybe you've given up hope of that ever happening. I want to remind you this morning that if you believe and belong to God, then God hasn't given up on you. He is still writing your story. This is not the final chapter. In fact, with God, anything is possible, but he wants us to lift our expectations, to believe and trust in him that he will come through, that we can count on him. So this morning, I just want to introduce you to the lyrics of a a very old psalm. Uh, It's a a song, actually. It's called um, Psalm 130. You'll find it in the Bible. Uh, And it's uh, part of a collection which is known as the Songs of Ascent. And uh, if you are here last week, you may recall that I told you that these songs of ascent were sung by the Jewish people during ancient times. They would travel to Jerusalem for a bunch of national festivals, and as they traveled, they would sing these songs. And as they sung these songs, it would help them adjust their perspective. They would take their eyes off themselves, and they would look to God. But scholars believe that actually not only did the pilgrims sing the songs of ascent as they traveled to Jerusalem, but the priests sung these songs of ascent as they entered into the temple at Jerusalem. And so the temple was the, the really holy place uh, in Jerusalem where people would worship God. And the original temple had 15 steps leading into it. And conveniently, there's 15 songs of ascent. So traditionally, the priests would, as they walked up the temple steps, as they ascended the temple steps, they would recite these songs. So they would sing Psalm 120 when they were on the first step. And they would climb the next step, and they would sing Psalm 121. And then on the second step, they would sing Psalm 122, and so on. And so it takes takes sort of about five minutes to walk up these 15 steps. But the point is... They would pause at each step and have a spiritual lift. I think it's a really healthy practice to prepare ourselves in in a similar way for worship. And I think the architecture of modern churches means a lot of that is lost. So obviously the temple was a really impressive building with big substantial steps. And actually if you have ever been throughout Europe, you'll know that there was a lot of medieval cathedrals who were built in a a similar design. So with those cathedrals, you would walk up the steps, you'd go through these large doors, there'd be vaulted ceilings and and columns and domes everywhere, and and you would sit down in the seat and you would be this sense of anticipation. You'd be expecting something to happen. There would be this like spiritual lift if you entered into those cathedrals. It was designed to be an impressive reflection, just a glimpse of what God can do. But I I don't know if that's how we go to church. I mean, you know, if we're honest, we get ready for church on Sunday morning. It's like, everyone, everything, get in the car, rush 
to church, quick hello as you walk in the door, sit down, check your watch, it's five past ten, that's okay, they haven't started yet, it's good, you're waiting, and we're sort of not really expecting something to happen, we're actually waiting for something that we like, and we still have needs, and there's challenges and conflicts that, you know, we're dealing with every day, every week, and we want, I think we want things to change, but sometimes we're honest, if we're honest, we're not actually expecting God to really do much. But in ancient times, people had a very different perspective of God. They would look up, and as they ascended those steps, as they walked up those cathedral, into those cathedral doors, they would be reminded to worship God for His greatness and His gloriousness, because He is the maker of heaven and earth. You know what? I think that is a great way to start church. Anyway, we're going to start reading Psalm 130. This is what it says. Uh, From the depths of despair, O Lord... I cry for your help. Here, I call for your help, sorry. Hear my cry, O Lord. Pay attention to my prayer. Lord, if you kept a record of our sins, who, O Lord, could ever survive? But you offer forgiveness that we might learn to fear you. I'm counting on the Lord. Yes, I'm counting on him. I've put my hope in his word. I long for the Lord more than the centuries long for the dawn. Yes, more than centuries long for the dawn. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is unfailing love. His redemption overflows. You know, that songwriter is anonymous. We don't know who wrote that song, but it's clear that they're on a spiritual journey. See, the first half, uh, verses 1 through 4, they are crying out to God. They're calling out to Him for help. They're seeking God's forgiveness for their sin. And then in the second half of the song, verses 5 through 7, they're counting on God. They're trusting in His promises and His Word. They're believing that He can do it. They're waiting in hopeful expectation, just like a sentry, like a night watchman would wait for the dawn. And for me, it's a real picture of someone who knows their help and their hope is in God. They have confident assurance in God's mercy and His forgiveness, that God is generous in His unfailing love and his overflowing grace, that he will give good things uh, to his people, because he is good. Have you ever watched this TV program? It's called Friends. Anybody? Okay. All right. This is your chance to um, win some chocolate, Atedia. So... So, Friends was a really popular, one of the most popular TV sitcoms, uh, ran for about 10 years, and the actors and the actresses who played those six characters became household names. So, if you can tell me the character's name and the actor or the actress's name who played that character, I'll give you a chocolate. Lynette, I knew you'd be in. Right, you're only going to do one person, so pick your favorite. Well, I can't give you six chocolates, can I? Confidence. Yeah. Uh, do you mean the lady or the man? Okay. Yeah. She is. Uh, do you know what? I'm going to give you two, just because I'm feeling generous. Sorry about that. Okay, anybody else? Lindley? That is correct. Two? <laughs> Glenn? 
Yeah. Ooh. Lisa, did you say? You did say Lisa. Right, here we go. All right, we've got three down, three to go. Anybody older than these Generation Xs? Stacy, Tedia. Tedia. She is very popular, famous. Okay, we've got two more to go, and luckily I've got four chocolates left. Yep. Oh, we've just had her. Sorry. Gary? Joey? Oh, he does. Okay, last person, which is this guy on the end. Chandler. Bing! Yes, Lynette. All right. That wasn't actually really what I wanted to give out the chocolates for. What I will give to the person, I'll give a whole bag of Milky Ways to the person who is willing to tell me the name of the theme song of the, of the show and at least a few lyrics. You don't have to sing it, but a few lyrics. Okay, wait, 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 wait. Right. Denise, your hand was what I saw first. I'll be there for you. Thanks, Denise. Oh, that's the name of the song. Right. And... Yeah. All right, you guys are going to have to share it. We'll rip the bag open. Okay, whole bag. You ready? I might just give it to you because... If the people in the back row are looking nervous. <laughs> All right, so it was the theme song for, the, uh, for this show was called I'll Be There For You. And this is what it says. Um, so no one told you life was going to be this way. Your job's a joke, you're broke, your love life's DOA, dead on arrival. It's like you're always stuck in second gear when it hasn't been your day, your week, your month, or even your year. But! Yeah, see? You know the, you know the age range of people when they start singing that song, though. And, and it's, you know, a lovely song, and I suppose if you've watched a TV program, you'll know that, you know, as much as they could, they were there for each other. That's why it's called Friends. But the truth is, no human can honestly sing that, I think, because there's times when we can't be there for our friends or our family or the people that we say we'll be there for. But you know, God can. In fact, God is. And this ancient songwriter, as we saw, is counting on God. So this morning, I want to very quickly give you three reasons why you can count on God. The first one is this. <clears throat> God is on his throne. Uh, one of the other songs from the Psalms of Ascent says this, I lift my eyes to you, O God, enthroned in heaven. Do you know, social scientists say that uh, someone's height generally affects their influence. So, so in, in one study... Uh, people prefer to vote for political candidates who are tall. So in the last 60 years, virtually all of the American presidents have been six foot or taller. Now, I don't know why people look to tall people for leadership. I mean, if you want to know, Jacinda Ardern, she's five foot five inches, which is the average height of women in New Zealand. But I think when we, re when we need real hope, when we need real help 
we actually have to go beyond that. We have to go to the next level, to the, not, not our tall politicians, but to the stratosphere. And so the amazing thing about God is he's not in the beehive chairing uh, a cabinet meeting. He's not at the UN general election in the speaker's seat. He's not even in Buckingham Palace on an earthly throne. God is enthroned in heaven. He's the king of the universe. And I love this description of the power God has. God has. Heaven is my throne. And the earth is my footstool. My hands have made both heaven and earth. They and everything in them are mine. I, the Lord, have spoken. You know, God is powerful. I actually find that quite comforting to know that his power is for us. In fact, God is on our side. Look at the psalm from uh, Psalm 124. What if the Lord had not been on our side? The psalmist hypothetically asks. What if the Lord had not been on on our side when people attacked us? They would have swallowed us alive in their burning anger. You know, if you watch the sports news, you'll see it's reasonably common for um, professional athletes to have a, a falling out, maybe with their coach or their teammates. And one of the most divisive people in New Zealand sport in the last few years has been this guy, John Mitchell. And uh, you may or may not remember, but he was the All Blacks coach back in 2003 for the Rugby World Cup. And there was controversy from the beginning because some of the selections he made as coach uh, weren't really what other people agreed with. Favourites like Christian Cullen and Tane Randall, they didn't make the cut, they missed out. And the talk was that John Mitchell uh, hadn't selected those players, even though some people thought they were the best, because he had a personality clash with them. But the real drama, the real controversy was... <clears throat> came in, in the Rugby World Cup itself when New Zealand lost the semi-final to Australia. And a lot of people felt we lost because Tana Umanga was not playing. So he was not picked to play at centre, even though he was the specialist for that role. Because it seemed that the coaches doubted his ability to fulfil what they wanted. And that must be one of the worst feelings in sport when the coach or the captain of your team doesn't believe in you. But you know, if you're a Christian, that is never the case. God is on your side. In fact, the psalmist finishes off this psalm by praising God. He says, we escaped our enemies, and he gave us the help and the hope that we needed. Third reason I want to share with you is this. God is surrounding his people. This is what we read in Psalm 125. Those who trust in the Lord are as secure as Mount Zion. They will not be defeated, but will endure forever. Just as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people both now and forever. So Jerusalem, geographically, is is on a plateau, surrounded by mountains. In Alexandria, we've got some pretty impressive mountains. You know, that old man, the Kapawai mountain range, it is at 5,500 feet above sea level, which is pretty high. In fact, there's nothing higher between the Kapawai Range, and the South Pole. So what that means is that that range gives us a lot of shelter and a lot of protection from some of that wild weather that just comes up from Antarctica and across the Southern Ocean. And it's kind of a picture of what God is like for his people. And he promises to surround them, to give them the shelter, the comfort, the protection, both now and forever. But I think sometimes we surround ourselves with other stuff which we think will give us security. Stuff like wealth, relationships, 
qualifications, our work, investments, friends, sports, technology, culture, even self-sufficiency. You know, that stuff is not going to provide or even protect us in the way God does. And if we can, ex- we can expect God to look after us, because He can and He will, if we trust Him for His goodness, if we believe in His faithfulness, if we lift our expectations. You might have heard of Matthew. He wrote a biography of Jesus, and he recorded some amazing experiences, some phenomenal encounters. And uh, one of these was between a Roman officer. He came in, approached Jesus, and uh, Matthew chapter 8 records what happened. I'll read it with you. You're welcome to join me as I read. But this is what we read. When Jesus returned to Capernaum, a Roman officer came and pleaded with him, Lord, my young servant lies in bed, paralyzed and in terrible pain. Jesus said, I will come and heal him. But the officer said, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come into my home. Just say the word from where you are and my servant will be healed. I just want to point out something here. You've got to appreciate this Roman is not a Jew. He's a foreigner. And as a Roman, the Romans had a whole pantheon of gods and goddesses to which they could typically turn. But this Roman turns to Jesus and he asks for healing for his servant. And he expectantly believes that with Jesus, anything is possible. And he even says, look, don't come to my house. You have the power and authority to just say the word. Jesus, you can do a miracle. And miracles, uh, it's a bit of a loaded word, isn't it? Like, if you've been around Christian circles long enough, it sort of seems sometimes like some people have a monopoly on miracles, almost as if they've kind of hijacked miracles. It's like, you know, you call this number, you pay this money, and then you get your miracle. That's what's on some of those TV channels anyway. And so when that sort of is the popular perception, for people outside of the church, they end up getting really critical, and people inside the church just end up getting really confused. But the truth is, anything is possible with God. This Roman believed that Jesus could heal his servant. He had great expectations. So I love Jesus' response. This is, this is what he does. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to those who were following him, he said, I tell you the truth, I haven't seen faith like this in all Israel. Like, just put yourself in the sandals there for a minute. I mean, Jesus hears this guy saying, look, Jesus, you don't even have to come to my house. You can say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus just gobsmacked. And he turns to his followers and he goes like, guys, guys, I mean, are you getting this? This is, this is what I've been talking about for ages. And this foreigner comes up and gets it. And you guys are still struggling to get it. And so there's this whole trust, this belief, this, this faith, Jesus says, it's unlike anything I've seen in all of Israel. So he turns it into a, a teachable moment for his followers. And that very moment, that servant, way off at the Roman's house, is healed. You might think, well, that's it's very nice, Jesus. Well done. Double thumbs up. That miracle was just, you know, kind of lucky, special. 
And I need to tell you that that miracle was not a one-off. In the two chapters, Matthew chapter 8 and chapter 9, this is what Jesus does. He heals the sick servant. We've just read this. He then heals a man with leprosy. He heals his friend's mother-in-law. He heals a person from an evil spirit. He calms a storm. He heals a man who's paralyzed. He heals a man, uh, sorry, a woman who is bleeding. He raises a girl from the dead. He heals two blind men, and then he heals a man who is mute. And then at the end of that, of the end of those two chapters, he says the harvest is great, but the workers are few. You know, the amazing thing is that Roman didn't see half those miracles, and yet he still believed. He still trusted. A.W. Tozer, an American writer, said this. He said, God can do anything as easy as he can do anything else. God can make a galaxy as easy as he can lift a robin off a nest. You know, it's that power, it's that presence of God that we can trust in, we can have faith in. One of the first Christians put it like this. He said, it is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. So faith is essentially saying, I believe in God. I believe he is who he says he is. I believe he can do what he says he can do. I believe that with God, anything is possible. Miracles are possible. Transformations are possible. God can make anything new. I have great expectations. I don't know about you, but I've found that in my life, faith is really easy to talk about, but it's hard to practice. And when it comes to having expectations of God, maybe, maybe you've had that in the past. Maybe you really want that for the future, but there's something holding you back. Maybe you believe, maybe you trust Maybe you have faith, maybe you're desperate for a miracle, maybe you expect great things, and, and perhaps you've prayed, perhaps you've fasted, perhaps you've read the Bible, perhaps you've sung the songs, perhaps you've done all the things that you were supposed to do, and you were believing, and you were trusting, and you were hoping, and you were expecting, and then it didn't happen. It didn't happen. Your nephew stayed sick. Your husband walked out. The addiction got worse. Your boss made you redundant. Your parent passed away. Your family feud just blew up. Your investment failed. And you say, why? Why is that? I, I, I read about these miracles in the Bible, and I believe that they are true, and that with Jesus, anything is possible, but it seems like in my own life, nothing is happening. My faith is futile. My expectations are empty. And we get disillusioned because it seems like God doesn't show up. You know, so some people explain that as, um, you know, they were praying, they were hoping, they were expecting, and then God didn't come through. And so they explain it and they say, well, I know God has a bigger purpose. God has a bigger plan. Do you know what skeptics say to that? really cute. You know, Christians, they talk about believing in miracles and, and that God can do anything, and then when God doesn't show up, Christians let God off the hook because he's got a bigger plan. 
And so skeptics say, well, what's the deal? I mean, is, is God a God of miracles? Can he do that stuff? Or has he got a bigger plan? Whew, got a bit tense for a minute, didn't it? Well, can I suggest this? That perhaps it's both. God, with God, anything is possible. But God also has a bigger plan. I'm not, I'm not trying to be funny or, you know, try and balance the perspectives here, but God can do anything, and God does have a bigger plan because the reality is we live in the overlap. We're at the point of human history where heaven and earth is overlapping. So God can do anything. He can do miracles. But at the same time, our world is broken and messy. And so from our perspective, we see things that need fixed. We see stuff that needs sorted. And we question why God won't intervene. But those circumstances we looked at from God's perspective can be a little bit different. I mean, he's sitting on the throne in heaven. And he, he sees what needs to happen. And he sees how it needs to happen. And so from our perspective, we need God to do a miracle. But from God's perspective, he has a bigger plan. And I think the best example of this is Jesus. So, in the hours before Jesus was crucified for the sins of the world, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was praying, and he was wrestling with all this, this challenges that he was supposed to go through. And then at one point in his prayer, he says this, My Father, praying to God, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Now, Jesus was searching for a miracle. And anything's possible with God. I mean, it was totally 100% possible for this pain and the suffering that Jesus was planned to endure to be taken away. Anything's possible. But then Jesus said this, Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. You see, in the same breath, he trusted God's perspective. He realized that he couldn't see the bigger picture, but he had to believe, he had to have faith that God has got it all under control. And actually, I'll say this. I don't know whether we realize it or not, but God is always working. For those who would lift their eyes to him, God is working a miracle every time and in every situation. Well, you say, well, how can you say that, Craig? Because... There's no miracle in the garden. Jesus asks for this cup of suffering to be taken away. He acknowledges that God's got a bigger perspective, maybe that there's a bigger plan going on, and then moments later, he's betrayed, he's arrested, he's falsely accused, he's mocked, he's beaten, and he's condemned to die a cruel death on a cross. There's no miracle in that. And it seems like Jesus missed out on his miracle rescue. But perhaps the greatest miracle is that actually the Son of God would humble himself and take on skin and bone and bear the punishment that we deserve so that we could enjoy fullness of life with God. In fact, the greatest miracle in the history of the world is that God's one and only Son would invite you into a relationship with Him. So I just want to pause for a moment and give you an opportunity to reflect and respond to that.
Maybe this is the first time you've ever heard about Jesus. Maybe this is the first moment you've realized that God has a plan for your life. And so I just want to give you just a couple of minutes to just quietly connect with Jesus. Maybe you're skeptical that how can anything be possible with God? Well, try it. Now's a great time to test him. I'm sure he can handle it. Maybe you have had faith in the past, and maybe you're a bit disillusioned because you feel like God has let you down. You're cautious about lifting your expectations because you don't want to be disappointed again. That's fair enough. But perhaps you could consider God's perspective on your situation. And maybe just try and reflect on what miracles you see Him still working on your behalf. So I'm just going to give you a, a minute or two to consider those. Whatever sadness, whatever strain, whatever suffering we're facing, God's got it. God's on His throne. He's on our side. He's surrounding us, and He won't let us slip. And with God, anything is possible if we'd see the bigger perspective that He has. So I guess He just asks us to believe, to trust, to have faith, to lift our expectations.